G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks. Welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Well, we did it, Tim. We made it to the end of season four. Yeah, that's great. And I'm really pleased with what we've been able to accomplish with the show so far. I'm looking forward to next season already, but as per our usual custom, we're going to take a month off before season five begins. Yeah, and that's a good opportunity for listeners to catch up on episodes they might have missed and also gives us a break and a chance to reset and a chance to miss one another. Yeah, that's right. Next season will be huge. But before we get there, I think it'd be good for us to take a moment to reflect on the season that we've just had. Do we have any memory montage music or something like that? I'll have to see what we, we can find. Ah, uh, there it is. After a bit of SSDD, that's Serpent Seed Doctrine debunking, not the other thing, although the number of times I get asked questions about that kind of feels like the other thing, we started the season with the introduction of the story of Cain. Mm, sorry, I think I was missing something there. What's SSDD? Same stuff, different day. I'm sorry that I uh, frequently don't understand what you're talking about, but I am generally curious, I must say. What is SSDD? As I said, same stuff, different day. Ah, uh, fine, don't tell me. I guess I'll figure it out for myself. Anyway, even though Genesis 4 seems to stand alone as an independent piece of literature, it has strong ties to the previous chapters. So whatever original purpose this story may have served, for the composer of the primeval history, it's become part of a bigger tapestry and he's used it to tell much bigger stories. It's not just about two brothers. And it all started with Eve's expectation of a Messiah. And in verse 1 we read, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Yeah, that's right. This was a part of the story where translators had put in some extra words to try and make sense of it, but they ended up changing the meaning of it in the process. Exactly. Keeping in mind the connections back into Genesis 3 and the expectation of the seed of the woman, which was going to be her man, not her husband. Eve expects that this man that she's acquired is going to be the Lord's representative on earth. It doesn't turn out like that. And this sets the stage for the rest of the chapter that ensues with disastrous consequences for mankind. Verse 2, and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So Abel gets introduced into the story, albeit very briefly, and we get some indication of the occupation of the two brothers, which we're meant to understand allegorically. Abel, whose name means breath, represents the spoken word of God, and his occupation as a keeper of sheep is a pastoral role over the people of God. Cain, on the other hand, is a king and earthly ruler, a tyrant, and in contrast to Abel, whose sheep will come when he calls, Cain must take what he needs from the ground, which represents the people of the world, by force. And we talked in that episode, which I think was episode four of this season, about how the author of Hebrews in the New Testament had this same understanding of the text when he considered the faith of Abel as being represented in his work and his offering to God. That was really cool. I think most people who read the New Testament are not thinking about what kind of approach to the Old Testament those authors must have been using. Yeah, so what the author is setting up here is the conflict between the prophets of God and the kings of Israel over the course of Israelite history prior to the exile. And it all kicks off with the conflict over the reception of these offerings. The author sets the stage by telling us about a famine in the land, obscured in our translations by that weird little gloss in the text that just says, in the course of time. But which really should be telling us that the days of pasturing flocks and growing crops had come to an end. 
the brothers have fallen on hard times. And it's their response, not in the gifts that they bring, but in the attitude of their hearts, that determines how God decides to respond to them. From verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. We talked a bit about this part of the text, and probably the thing that stood out most for me was the idea that there's some passage of time implied here, which we don't necessarily see in the straightforward reading of the translation. In the ancient world, you knew that you had the favour of your God if you got a good crop in the next season, or if your cattle had a good breeding season, or whatever. It's not like you put your offering on the altar and God just appears and shakes your hand and says, yep, this is great, I like this. So what follows then is a season in which Abel is doing well and Cain is struggling. It may have been more than one season. But the bottom line is that if Cain doesn't get some divine assistance, he and his household are not going to survive. That's a way of life that is so foreign to us. It's no wonder we miss it when we read the text. Yeah. Uh, From verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God comes to Cain and brings him words of encouragement and basically tells him that he's going to have to persevere in order to find favour. And in spite of the thoughts that have already crossed Cain's mind, God tells him that it isn't too late to have a change of heart toward his brother. Yeah, this part really blew me away when we were talking about sin, crouching at the door, and how you can actually read that as a sin offering being prepared at the entrance to a sacred space, which would have been put there by Abel. That's right, and particularly significant is the way that reading this correctly takes this apparent personification of sin and does away with it so that we can more clearly see that it's Abel whose desire is to help his brother. Not some kind of sin demon trying to snatch Cain, like as if sin is some kind of external force acting on him. And that leads us to conclude, and rightly so, that this passage isn't trying to give us an origin story of sin or the evil inclination. The point of the story is the escalation of sin, and that's what this whole chapter is about. That's why we see Cain rapidly transition from being angry with his brother to becoming a murderer. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, that was a really interesting part of the text, actually, when we were trying to figure out what Cain said to Abel, and we ended up concluding that he didn't say anything. But in fact, our English translations have eliminated the reading that explains the murder. Because murder is a crime of passion, Cain was angry, and our translation has a tendency to conceal this. We also discovered that even though this murder occurred in the heat of passion, there was premeditation involved. And not only that, but a ritual element as well. I thought it was fascinating when we dived into the interpretation of this text provided by authors of the New Testament who recognised this killing as a human sacrifice, which was probably offered to a storm god. And we talked about how ritual in the ancient world was a means of symbolically representing an earthly reality that you wanted to be enacted from the heavens. Cain shed his brother's blood on the land because he wanted rain to fall on the land. Yeah, that was really fascinating. I hadn't come across that interpretation before, but it came out of some pretty solid study of the original scripture. Yeah. Uh, Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That was a really interesting exchange between God and Cain. God obviously knows about Abel's murder, but he's asking Cain, and there's an interesting play on words going here as we discussed back in episode six of this season, because Abel's name can mean something like mystery or something that cannot be grasped. And the idea is that Cain might have killed his brother, but his brother's voice still cries out. And now 
Cain can't do anything about that. Cain doesn't know where his brother is, but God hears his voice. Cain's response to the question isn't, I don't know, but really more like, I don't care. And that's a direct contrast to the law of God, which tells us that we are our brother's keeper. Because just as Abel represents the breath of God, and thus the word of God, we all are responsible to keep it. Mm, I love that connection between hearing and keeping the word of God. Verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. We keep going back to this imagery of the ground being representative of the people of the world. Here they cry out about the injustice that they've been made to participate in as a result of the tyranny of their king. We're talking here about the shedding of innocent blood and sacrificing to foreign gods, which is a theme that comes up in the Deuteronomistic history and in the prophets. It's one of the major reasons why Israel went into exile. And as we know, the cry of the oppressed and the cry of those who suffer injustice does not reach the ears of the God of Cain, but it does reach the ears of Yahweh. So God tells Cain that he's going to lose his power, and that's what it means when the text says in verse 12, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Yeah, Cain goes into exile, and we're reminded that this story is the story of Israel. I didn't mention this until quite late in this season of the podcast, but there is a very intentional parallel between the name of Cain and the name of the land of Canaan and the people of the land of the Canaanites. Because we're supposed to see Israel in the light of what they have become and who they have become like. The author is telling Israel that in doing as the Canaanites do, they have become like them and therefore they are driven out of sacred space just as the Canaanites were in the conquest. Just a quick note on that. Did you notice that there is no Israelite who's ever said to become a giant or a demon or something like that? As much as some commentators are keen to say that you become the thing that you act like, we don't actually see that in scripture. Authors may use literary devices in that way, as we've uh, just seen with Cain and the Canaanites, but you never have that kind of thing occurring in any real sense. I digress. Uh, verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So this was the part where we tried to psychoanalyze Cain a little bit and figured out that he was trying to do a bit of blame shifting and trying to minimize his responsibility in Abel's death and trying to push back against God a bit. And of course, God's going to see through all of that, but he still provides some mercy for Cain in the form of what the text calls a mark. And we spend a bit of time going through what various historical interpreters have made of this idea. Some of these ideas have had truly horrendous consequences on huge numbers of people over the years. So we've got to be careful with this text. We've had people say that the mark of Cain was black skin or hair all over his body or horns on his head or some kind of text written on his forehead. There are some really crazy interpretations out there. But despite what most people believe, that the text doesn't specify what this mark was, I think it is actually spelt out for us right there in the text, and you can even see it in the English translation. The mark or sign or warning or however you want to translate that expression is actually a saying that would become a popular phrase later echoed by Lamech. Whoever kills Cain will suffer sevenfold vengeance. So the idea behind that expression is that Cain would become so well known for this act of disproportionate revenge on his brother that nobody would dare to confront him or any of his tribe. 
Verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This part was interesting to me because it seemed reminiscent of some earlier pre-Edenic state where mankind had not yet been differentiated from the animals, and that Cain's way of life would be seen as animalistic and driven by basic primal urges, as opposed to his father Adam, who had been called to something higher in the service of others and of God. And that's represented in this idea of the land of wandering, which gives the idea of a meaningless existence. In verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, since Cain can no longer make a living from working the ground, he's turned his attention to building security for himself and his family. The city builders have entered the chat. But we got a bit of a surprise when we found out that the first city was not called Enoch, but actually Eridu. The biblical author may have intentionally obscured that fact in order to make a mockery of Babylonian claims to superiority. And then he turns his attention to tearing down not only the Babylonians, but Israel as well, because having initially cast them as the Canaanites through the name of Cain, he now demonstrates that Israel's fall from its calling and purpose in God looks just like the chaos and depravity that they see around them in Babylon. So the author begins to rattle off what looks like a genealogy of Cain's line, but in actual fact, it's just a litany of the failures of the people of Israel as they endeavoured to seek their own security against the will of God. Verse 18, to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And I'd be willing to bet that most of our listeners didn't see this coming. In Enoch, we saw the failed attempt at divinity, and that was followed by the failures of the prophets, the priests, and the kings of Israel. All of these were represented in this fake genealogy, which had the absurd notion of men giving birth to men in order to show how contrary to nature this was. And these are the kind of things that you just don't see in an English translation. God had created Adam to be all of those things, and yet mankind had so thoroughly corrupted himself that he'd become a failure on every side and succumbed to a culture of chaos. And I say mankind because we are continually reminded that this story applies to all of us beyond simply the people of Israel or the culture of the Babylonians. And then the author shows us where it ends up with Lamech, the king of chaos. From verse 19, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adar and the name of the other, Tzillah. Adar bore Yaval, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Yuval, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Tzillah also bore Tuval Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tuval Cain was Naama. Now, we spend a lot of time talking about the family of Lamech and how we could see in them a foreshadowing of the technologies used by the fallen sons of God to lead people further into depravity. And even though we haven't yet been introduced to those divine beings in this narrative so far, we found plenty of evidence in the text to suggest what was going on even before we get to those explicit statements in Genesis 6. Mm, yeah, that, that part about the musical instruments designed to manipulate divine beings and all that kind of stuff was pretty amazing. Yeah, so it's no surprise then to see the escalation of violence and evil in the world even more than what we saw with Cain, because Lamech now thinks that he's got the entire divine council backing up his threats of vengeance. From verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Adar and Silla, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. That was really interesting when we spent some time looking at traditions that have arisen from different readings of this text and the idea that Lamech might have been blind. We saw a good example of how far you have to go and how much you have to corrupt the text of Scripture in order to defend a really dumb idea. And it usually involves adding 10 times more stuff than what the Bible actually says. 
But it was good just to come back to the words of Jesus and to reflect on forgiveness as a means of undoing or the uh, evil of the world. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. We finally get to the conclusion of the chapter, which brings Adam and Eve back into the story. And this brings us some hope. Eve doesn't get named in this text, which keeps our hopes alive that she, or any woman for that matter, could yet bring forth the seed of the woman, the one who will set everything right again. In verse 26, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And the text concludes with the voice of the righteous crying out to God for mercy. We don't yet know what form that will take, but now the author has begun to set us up for the next part of the story, which is the Toledot of Adam. Lamech was the climax of human depravity and the turning point of the story. Now we look forward in hope for deliverance, but the text has made clear that we, as represented by Enosh, are subject to our mortality, our corruption, our helplessness and weakness. We're not going to get out of this on our own. So that's been a summary of our study for, for this season, which of course went into so much depth in each episode that we haven't got time for here. So if you've just started listening recently and some of this stuff sounds interesting or weird to you, I would encourage you to go back and listen through the whole season. But don't stop there. This is season four. There's plenty of great material in the first three seasons too, and you're going to need that in order to get to full experience. So what I thought I'd do before we move on is give you my paraphrase of Genesis 4 in its entirety, which I hope will give you more of a sense of how it would have been understood by its first audience. Let me just be clear. It's my paraphrase, and that's all it is. The Word of God is in the original language, and not anything that comes out of my mouth, but hopefully you'll find this helpful. So I'm just going to read from verse 1. And the man was intimate with Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, whose name means gotten, saying, I have gotten a man who will represent Yahweh. And later she also bore his brother Abel, whose name means breath or mystery. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And when those days came to an end, Cain brought to the Lord an appeasement offering of the produce of the people of the land. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their best portions. And the Lord looked with favour on Abel and his appeasement offering, but on Cain and his appeasement offering he had no regard, so Cain was very angry, and he became downcast. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you persevere, will you not be vindicated? But if you do not make good, a sin offering has been laid in preparation at the entrance. Abel's desire is to help you, for you must rule over him. Cain became angry and despised Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and ritually sacrificed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And Yahweh said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's lifeblood is crying to me through the people of the land. And now you are given an unfavorable destiny by the people of the land, who had opened their mouths but received only your brother's lifeblood from your hand. When you subjugate the people, they shall no longer yield power to you. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the land. Cain said to Yahweh, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have exiled me today away from the people, and thus from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the land, and whoever finds me will kill me. 
Then Yahweh said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Thus Yahweh established this warning for Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of wandering, as if he were living prior to the days of Eden. Cain was intimate with his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, whose name means divine ascent. When Enoch built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son. To Enoch was born Irad, the city of dominion. And Irad was known as the father of Mahuyael, that which is erased by God. And Mahuyael was known as the father of Methushael, the death of prayer. And Methushael was known as the father of Lamech, the king of chaos and disorder. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, adornment, and the name of the other, Tzila, sweet singing and music. Adah, or Yaval, what flows from. He was the father of merchants who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Yuval. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe, which represents spiritual and sensual music. Tzila also bought Tuval Cain, what flows from Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naama, whose name means lovely. Lamech said to his wives, Adar and Silla, hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is disproportionately great, then Lamech will invoke all the wrath of heaven. And Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has planted for me another seed in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, which means human weakness. At that time, people, in spite of their defilement, dared to cry out with hope in the name of Yahweh. And that's the end of that reading. As I say, it's my own paraphrase, and I'm not claiming divine inspiration. If you want the inspired word, learn Hebrew. But hopefully it helped you to get the bigger picture that this chapter presents. You've obviously put in a lot of work to arrive at that rendering of the text. How come we don't see a Bible published with a reading like that? Uh, it's mainly because in order to make the reading as plain as I have done there, you've really got to strip out a lot of the poetry, the metaphorical language, the numerology, and all those beautiful things that the Hebrew language does to communicate those truths. I also decided that in my approach to the text, I would just take the things that were only implied with some degree of subtlety and just make them really explicit. I want to make it clear that I don't prefer my paraphrase over any existing Bible translation. I just think that after all the work we did in going through this chapter of the Bible in such depth, it would be helpful to remember some of the stuff that we unpacked in a single reading of the text. Genesis 4 provided an essential lesson in early Israelite history that reminded its audience of why they'd suffered exile. Every stroke of the pen was designed to characterise Israel as the bloodthirsty tyrant Cain showing how idolatry instead of faithful allegiance leads to death and chaos, both functionally and on a material level. But let's not think that this text was written about Israel. This is God's book, and it's all about him. Remember at the start of the chapter that Cain was supposed to represent God. And God may have initially blessed Abel with an easy life, but he was trying to develop perseverance and strength in Cain. Cain's rejection of this test was no doubt disappointing, but God didn't give up on him. Even though God knew what Cain was planning to do to his brother, Abel, he continued to encourage Cain to make the right choice. It seemed even at that stage prior to the murder of his brother, there was an avenue for restoration made available to Cain. But God does not take away our free will. Cain made his decision and would have to live with the consequences. 
And even then, God was merciful. He had a pretty unusual way of protecting Cain against revenge, but it seems to have been effective. Perhaps most significant in this story is that God never turned his face away from Cain. It was only Cain who talked about being hidden from God's face. Attitude is everything. Unfortunately for Cain, it was his attitude that got him into this mess in the first place, and he did himself no favours. But what I see when I read this story is God's love for Cain. Because at any point, Cain could have turned back toward God. And so can we. Preach it, brother. Amen. And that's what I want us to remember about this text. It's about all of us. In our own way, we're all just like Cain. This story begins in verse 1 with the man. The man is who we are. And the way of Cain is the way we live apart from God. And as long as we remain apart from God, then what comes forth from Cain will also come forth from ourselves. We try to distance ourselves from God because doing things his way can be hard. And then we build structures around our lives to provide security for ourselves. We become passive and look for gods that will encourage us to follow our own passions and desires. We deny our responsibilities and our compassion for others grows cold. Eventually, we die a slow, functional death, losing the capacity to represent God as prophet or priest or king. And our lives become swallowed up in disorder and chaos, prone to violence and basic urges. We become obsessed with entertainment and with gratifying our own desires. And we lash out with a vengeance, threatening anyone who even makes us feel like our attitudes and choices might be wrong. This paints a pretty good picture of what many of Israel's kings were like. Now, it would be nice to think that we can hold somebody like that at arm's length and point to them as the problem. But the reality is that we're all the same apart from God. And the other reality is that it's never too late to repent while you still draw breath. Yeah, that's so true. God never leaves us without hope. It might sound like I've been painting a very antagonistic picture of kingship as we've been going through this season of the podcast. And you could say the same thing about cities as well. I've had a lot to say about how cities reflect a kind of way of life that rejects the security that God offers in favour of a security that you build yourself. If you've got that kind of vibe as you listen through this season of the podcast, I wouldn't blame you at all. But the truth is that the only reason that kingship and cities are viewed so negatively in Genesis 4 is because they're held in contrast to the way that God would have it done. God had intended for the first man to be king. Unfortunately, he became passive and was nowhere to be found when his wife needed him. And again, when a dispute arose between his sons, he was absent. The heir to his throne became a tyrant, an idolater, and a murderer. And unfortunately, that became a cultural norm that exists to this day. And yet we look forward to the return in glory of Christ Jesus our King and to the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. Clearly, kings and cities are not all bad. And the text isn't explicit on this, but we could say the same about fathers. God just wants it done his way, and he wants us to participate in that kingdom and to find our place in that glorious city. And that's why Genesis 4 ends with hope. That's why we return to the seed of the woman crying out in the hope of mercy, even though, like Enosh, we find ourselves hopelessly inadequate to be in the presence of God, because we need that seed. We need our saviour, and we trust in the name of the Lord. And that's not just the end of Genesis 4, it's actually the end of the Toledot of the heavens and the earth, which started back at Genesis 1, even though that word Toledot doesn't appear until we hit Genesis 2. And we talked back in Season 2 of the podcast about that word and what it means. Just to refresh your memory, the word Toledot means something like that which proceeds from. So the Toledot of the heavens and the earth is the story of what comes forth from the world around us. And as a result of the decision to take control of human destiny made by our representative leaders, I'm talking about Adam and Eve here, 
in which we all have participated. Ultimately, what has proceeded from the heavens and the earth is an outcry to God in the hope of justice. So, Tim, we've heard your comment a few times through the course of this season that the author of First Enoch was using Genesis 4 to draw out a lot of information that was fleshed out in that book uh, in order to account for the situation in Genesis 6 and what follows. So where does that leave us with regard to the status of First Enoch? How much weight can we put on that interpretation of Genesis? Again, this does not constitute an argument for canonicity in favour of First Enoch, but I just love the fact that being able to witness these threads being woven together by an analysis of biblical material shows how ancient people understood this text, and given the compatibility of First Enoch with later biblical material, it gives us confidence in following that interpretation of Scripture. What I mean by that is that although Genesis 4 says nothing explicitly about the teaching ministry of angels, or the interference of the sons of God in human affairs. The fact that New Testament authors such as Paul, Peter and Jude make reference to these ideas shows a consistency in the line of thinking that runs through First Enoch and back into Genesis 4. And that's good for us because it helps us to understand that when the author of First Enoch makes these connections, as part of the conversation around the fall of the Watchers and the rise of the Nephilim, he's not just pulling this stuff out of thin air. The bottom line is that our interpretation of Genesis 4 is supported by consistent thinking along those same lines over the course of several hundred years. From before the writing of the primeval history into the time of the early church. And you don't even have to go through First Enoch in order to make those connections, which we saw early in the season when we talked about how the author of Hebrews understood the situation with the offerings presented by Cain and Abel. That's not getting filtered through the Enochic tradition that's direct from scripture. So hopefully that's encouraging for you as a listener to this podcast who might be wondering if this stuff is legit. The evidence that this interpretation is biblically sound is found in the consistency presented by the New Testament and other Second Temple period literature. That's really good to hear. Anyway, I think that's enough talk about Genesis 4 to last us for a while. Obviously, the other major component of our show this season and every season, of course, is the Q&A segment where listeners get answers to their giant questions. And we had some really great questions from some interesting and very smart listeners to the show. We sure did. I won't go through every question that was raised for the sake of time here, but because we've still got our own Q&A segment to do at the end of this episode, which is going to be pretty cool. But just to mention some of the topics that we talked about, we kicked the season off with a question about whether the global elite were, in fact, shape-shifting reptilians. And that got us into a bit of discussion around vampires and the way the genealogies work. We talked about Ares, the Greek god of war, and trying to work out if he was actually the same guy that the Bible calls Azazel. So we had a little uh, bit of a comparative study there. That was pretty interesting. We had quite a few questions around the giants and the fallen sons of God, including things like whether or not there were female giants, what kind of split there was in the proportions of humanity versus divinity in the Nephilim. Was there any possibility of atonement for the Nephilim or the sons of God? And whether or not it was the same sons of God who rebelled in Genesis 6 that ended up being put in charge of the nations, according to Deuteronomy 32. A couple of times we had questions about the possibility of a repeat performance of the Genesis 6 rebellion, or whether we could expect to see the Nephilim in our modern day context. We had a question about robots, and the issue of transhumanism came into play there. One of my favourite questions for the season came from Carrie, who asked about the implications of national governments being under the influence of the fallen sons of God with regard to corporate responsibility for sin. And we talked about the way that individuals who are subject to the law of the land are, in a sense, complicit in those sins 
And it's our obligation as Christians faithful to God to repent of those sins and to work toward justice for those oppressed under our national laws and regulations. I really appreciated that question because it really came from the heart and wasn't just some kind of trivial question. Then we talked about whether there were multiple different Satans in the Bible, and we followed that by talking about distinctions between the sons of God compared to Jesus, the only begotten son of God. So we tried to bring some uh, disambiguation into those discussions where the language can be pretty confusing. Yeah, another interesting question we had was around the so-called silent years between the last prophet of the Old Testament and the advent of Christ, and whether there was any connection back to the sojourn in Egypt that would have made faithful followers of Yahweh anticipate the advent of Christ. And in another example where our listeners showed their initiative in looking for these kinds of intertextual connections, we had a question about Peter's vision of clean and unclean animals and whether there was any kind of substantial connection back to Genesis 9 and the covenant that God made with Noah and the inhabitants of the land. We also had a couple of questions around the Mesopotamian traditions of the Apkalu, what they were really like and their connection with Nimrod and the establishment of different religions all over the world. And last week, we got a really great question about how the author of Psalm 82 might have gotten the idea that the gods could indeed die like mortal men, as he writes in his psalm. That one was cool because we got into some Ugaritic literature as well as our biblical material. Having said all that, we still have one more giant question to answer this season, don't we, Chris? I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. We certainly do, and this one looks like uh, pretty good fun, so I hope you all enjoy it. Steve asked this question in the Raven Creek Social Club Paddle Store, which is an exclusive Facebook group for those who contribute to the Patreon for the Raven Creek Social Club. And Steve wants to know, What's the deal with those weird noises reported to be coming from beneath the Euphrates River? Okay, well, that's a fascinating question. And if you haven't heard of this before, then on the face of it, you might be asking what possible relevance this question might have on a podcast like this, or indeed why our friend Steve might be asking this question in a group that's primarily concerned with Bible study. So to give you a bit of an idea of where this is coming from, we have to draw together a few threads from different places, which will give the question some context. I guess it would be logical to begin with the sound that Steve is talking about. I'm going to play you some audio from YouTube published by people who claimed that these sounds were actually coming from the Euphrates River, specifically coming from cavities exposed in the riverbanks by the receding water line of the river. These cavities would have been underwater ordinarily, but in recent years the water level has seen a sharp decline. So here's an example of the sound that Steve is talking about.
Yep, that sounds pretty creepy. It sure does. For the record, that audio obviously does not belong to me, but you can find it on YouTube quite easily. Just type in Sounds of Fallen Angels Under the Euphrates River in the search bar. I found it on a channel called Cooking with Lisa. Who would have thought? The people narrating these video clips point out these metallic sounds, and they also draw attention to the almost voice-like sounds that you hear in the clip. And the people circulating these video clips want us to believe that these are the sounds of imprisoned angels that were trapped underneath the waters of the Euphrates River and are now crying and groaning to be released from their chains. So where are they getting this from? Where do you find the idea of angels in connection with the Euphrates River? As it turns out, the Euphrates is mentioned only twice in the New Testament. Both of those occurrences are in the book of Revelation and both have association with spiritual forces and the last days. I'm going to read those passages now to give you those reference points. This is Revelation 9, verses 13 to 15. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And we have another passage here from Revelation chapter 16. This is from verse 12 to 14. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. I think I see some similarities there in those two passages. Yeah, I think you certainly should. But you would have also noticed in the passage from Revelation 16 the mention of the Euphrates being dried up. This has struck a chord with those observers on the ground in the region of the Euphrates who have witnessed the decline in water levels and the subsequent exposure of things that were previously unseen beneath the water including structures that some people claim to resemble the bars of some kind of ancient stone prison. When taken in conjunction with the passage from Revelation 9 concerning the four angels said to be bound at the river Euphrates, this apparently paints a picture of an angelic prison of sorts being exposed by receding water levels and thus heralding the beginning of the end. Now, I guess it would be foolish of me to just take these assertions that the river is drying up as some kind of divine warning of impending doom without maybe just doing a little background research on why the river might be drying up. Good point. So a few minutes of Googling and I discovered that for several decades now there have been massive civil engineering projects undertaken by the governments of the nations through which the Euphrates River flows. You see, it turns out that the Euphrates passes through some pretty tough country where there are quite often droughts and famines. So as you can imagine, there are some pretty strong motivations for people in those regions to conserve as much water as they can possibly get. 
Now, the Euphrates begins in Turkey toward the north of that region, and it flows in a southeasterly direction through Syria and Iraq before emptying into the Persian Gulf. That means that Turkey gets first dibs on that sweet, sweet water. And as it turns out, they went and built a massive hydroelectric dam project, which would ensure water supply and electricity for Turkish people. That's good, isn't it? Well, that's great, except that the river is also supposed to supply water for Syrian people and for Iraqi people. And the Turkish hydroelectric operation severely restricted the amount of water that was passing downstream to those nations. That made them upset. So after a lot of political manoeuvring, that's politically correct terminology for bomb threats, it was eventually decided that the flow of water out of Turkey would be regulated in order to ensure that the people of Syria and the people of Iraq would also get adequate water. And then the Syrians did the same thing that the Turks did, which made the Iraqis really mad. Again, after a lot of political argy-bargy, it was finally resolved and decided that there was enough water for everybody if they just took their fair share for their water needs. Of course, now that the flow of the Euphrates has been severely restricted so that it only flows through certain channels to ensure the regulation of supply, that means that many places in which the river once flowed have now become dry riverbeds which may see flow only in wet periods, if at all. And the compounding effect of these actions has been localised climate change as a direct result of those works. So, over the last 50 years or so, the vast expanse of what comprised the Euphrates River has now been reduced at some places to a mere trickle. I'd be lying if I said I didn't find it slightly ironic that many evangelicals who are quick to deny man-made climate change are getting excited about the drying up of the river as a sign of the end times. Because it makes me think, well, which one do you want? Because if we didn't have this man-made climate change in the area, then you wouldn't get your prophetic sign that you've been waiting for. So are you going to acknowledge climate change to get your fulfilment of prophecy or deny both climate change and a potential sign of the last days? But I'll just leave that there. I'm not saying that God couldn't use the actions of mankind in order to fulfill prophecy because we do have evidence of that kind of thing in the scriptures. Yeah, that's that's true. Anyway, now you know why the river's drying up. The next question to ask is, since this stuff is mentioned in scripture, what are we supposed to make of it? What should be happening now as a result of the correlation between what we see and what the Bible is telling us, if that is a legitimate correlation. Because it's one thing to observe that the Bible affirms that the Euphrates was dried up. It's another thing to be able to prove that the current situation is that specific occasion referred to in Scripture. Has the Euphrates ever dried up in the past? Well, yes, it has, but not by natural means. I mentioned all the political posturing and argy-bargy that went on around the water access disputes between Turkey and Syria and Iraq. Back in 2014, the Turkish government simply turned off the water and left Syria and therefore Iraq by extension dry. Obviously, that situation proved unsustainable and things were quickly rectified. But outside of these artificial attempts to secure resources for Turkey, there's never been a time where the Euphrates has dried up. What we see presently is not a total stoppage of flow, but a severe restriction brought on by the use of these hydroelectric projects in combination with the water usage of those nations. That's not exactly a reason to panic. Nevertheless, it would be fair to say that outside of these measures, the Euphrates has never run dry, and it may well be that in order for this biblical prediction to come true, the artificial drying up of the river may be necessary. So any idea we might have had about some necessary choice between God drying up the Euphrates miraculously or some kind of man-made intervention is a false dichotomy. God can work through people, and he does all the time. 
whether we want to acknowledge climate change or not, it seems likely that now that we have the kind of technology required to dry up that river, that's probably the way it's going to happen. So according to the prophecy, if we're understanding it correctly, the next thing that we should expect to see, and that should have been happening since 2014 potentially, is the advancement of what John called the kings of the east toward Israel. And as far as anyone can tell, I don't think that's happening yet. Maybe it's yet to come. The beauty of end times prophecy is that you always get a chance to say, well, if it hasn't happened yet, that means it's going to happen soon. That's convenient. I know, right? Unless, unless there's some other way to understand the drying up of the Euphrates. Could there be another way of thinking about this iconic body of water? What does the Bible have to say? I mean, if we're going to be logical about this, let's at least try to be consistent. Because all we've done so far is assume that when the Bible mentions the Euphrates, we're talking about that body of water in a material sense, which, now that I think about it, sounds kind of dumb. Here we are in the 21st century, and we can't figure out how an invading army might get across a river. Like, unless it dries up, this invasion can't happen. Come on. So what kind of language is in use in these passages where we find the Euphrates mentioned in the Revelation? John says in Revelation 9.17 that he's having a vision. And obviously, this is an apocalyptic vision. And we know what to expect when we read the kind of language found in apocalyptic visions. We're getting a description that delivers some kind of a sense of the thing, but you can't necessarily take it literally. So that tells us that while the literal interpretation remains on the table, we must also consider that the Euphrates may be used in a symbolic way, which wouldn't be out of place at all in an apocalyptic vision. Let's think back to what we've learned back in season two of the podcast where we talked about the Garden of Eden. That's important because it's the Bible's very first reference to the Euphrates. In this instance, the Euphrates River forms one part of the boundary of sacred space. It is the border of the place where God is to be found. On the one side is the paradise, the Garden of Eden, and on the other side, there's wilderness and chaos. In ancient times, the Mesopotamians thought of the Euphrates in much the same way. In the Babylonian creation epic that we know as Enuma Elish, the two great rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, proceeded from the eye sockets of the defeated chaos monster Tiamat. The good land was the place between those rivers and beyond them was the realm of chaos and disorder. So great rivers in the minds of people in the ancient Near East represented the borders of the divine realm and the natural between order and chaos. That's not to say that all geographical distinctions made by the naming of a particular river cease to be relevant. We're still talking about the Euphrates after all, and it has a very real geographical location. Major rivers don't just form cosmological boundaries, but most obviously, they form natural national borders. That makes good sense. The Euphrates was considered the border of many great nations throughout the biblical period and earlier, but at the time of the Revelation being written, the entire region was under Parthian control. It has been suggested that the four angels of Revelation 9 represent four nations that once bordered on the Euphrates, but you might have trouble working out which ones. The Euphrates is connected to those nations that historically did cross it to invade Israel, and they did that without waiting for it to dry up, just saying. Uh, Isaiah refers to the river in his prophecy concerning the invasion of the Assyrians. Here it is from chapter 8 of Isaiah, from verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. 
Note that the river's floodwaters are used as a metaphor for the king of Assyria and his forces invading the land. This association of floodwaters and military destruction is as old as civilization itself. And as I mentioned in my book, the four angels are most likely intended to denote destruction from the four corners of the earth, represented in Revelation 7 as the four winds, and here in Revelation 16 as a world power coming from the east. All this is to say that we're not talking about four physical, literal angels. And I've noticed people saying they are chained under the Euphrates. Actually, Scripture doesn't say they are under the river at all. And after checking about 50 translations, I found only one reference to chains. So let's not be misled by something that sounds like Scripture but actually isn't. I've spoken many times on this podcast about this idea of chains with regard to divine beings. But because I enjoy it, I'll ask again, what kind of chains are they? What are they made of? Vibranium? Unobtainium? Adamantium? What about mithril? Or kryptonite? Couldn't I just make my house out of whatever these chains are made of to keep fallen angels out? I hope this sounds as stupid to you as it does to me. Repeat after me, not physical angels, not physical chains. And that means that the pictures we're seeing of supposed underwater prisons being exposed by lowering water levels aren't what we're being told either. Um, wasn't there a story in the Bible about an angel busting open a prison to get the apostles out? Yes, that was in Acts chapter 5. But uh, anyway, what's the deal with this stuff they're finding now that the water level is receding? Well, it turns out that because of the civil works undertaken in the area, Large, low-lying areas were turned into lakes by diverting the flow of the Euphrates to create these massive reservoirs. Those depressions and valleys were previously settled areas where thousands of people used to live. So it makes sense that those places would be full of all kinds of evidence of prior settlement in the areas that had been turned into lakes and dams. And that means that when the water begins to dry up, which it does quite rapidly because they increase the surface area of the water, which ironically leads to less available water, not more. Uh, lo and behold, ye oldie township started to appear from under the waters. Surprise! So the so-called dried banks of the Euphrates are actually scenes from the evaporated dams, exposing the structures that were inundated when they dammed the river. And if you thought that was misleading, well, we haven't addressed those weird sounds yet. Let's hear it again. This actually sounds like me getting out of bed, I think. This is me heading toward the coffee pot, dragging my chains behind me, inspecting the empty pot. What's wrong with this pizza? Where's my coffee? Oh no, I'm going to have to make my own coffee. Not happy. Leave me alone. 
You're going to say it's fake, aren't you? But I don't care. What do you reckon? That is still 100% creepy. Yeah, well, you know, I, I was prepared to be charitable and I figured that a lot of what you heard on the tape there was probably the sound of the machinations of hydroelectric power generation equipment or water diversion valves or something like that. I actually operate flood water diversion valves as part of my job, so I know they can make some pretty weird groaning noises. But then I came across a guy on YouTube who was able to produce very similar sounds to those on the Euphrates video. How did he manage that, you ask? He started out by reversing the audio on that clip, playing it sped up and removing additional effects. And guess what it sounded like after all that? It was animals at the zoo. He actually created his own version using the same freeware that I use to edit this podcast. The resemblance to the Euphrates video was uncanny, so theoretically, all you'd have to do is overlay that soundtrack on some images of these dried-up reservoirs and voila, you've made your very own video of fallen angels trapped under the Euphrates, which you can share with friends and make millions of American evangelicals get excited over their latest dose of fear porn. Let the ad revenue roll right in. So it turns out that the whole thing was a simple hoax. This guy probably thought that as long as nobody went to that exact location to check, they'd never find out. And I mean, surely nobody would have thought that it was weird that some voice would be calling out hello in English from some cave in the middle of the Syrian desert, right? But for those of us who read our Bibles closely, the truth comes out regardless. And as it turns out, we didn't have to travel along the Euphrates to get our answer. I could have produced the same video from my laptop right here in sunny Western Australia. And I would have gotten away with it too if I hadn't been for you meddling kids and your dog. Uh, the Scooby-Doo ending strikes again. Hey, Steve, thanks for letting us tackle your question. I hope you enjoyed hearing this as much as I enjoyed digging up the answer. And if you're listening at home and thinking there's a giant question you'd like answered, then by all means, send it in, giantanswers.com. Okay, well, now it's time to look ahead and have a sneak peek at what's coming in Season 5 of the podcast as we prepare to tackle the fifth chapter of Genesis. Yeah, Genesis 5 is, of course, the chapter that leads us through a genealogy from Adam to Noah. We're going to ask the big questions like, what's the deal with the long ages of people in this chapter? Do the numbers mean anything? How come some of these people have the same names as characters in Chapter 4? Is it really a genealogy or are we looking at something else? What makes this chapter important and what impact does it have on our interpretation of the rest of the bigger story as it leads into the flood account? I'm also planning to line up some guest appearances this season just to have a little variety. I've been wanting to do that since the last time we had guests on the show back in season two. So we might have some familiar faces and some new friends for you to meet. That sounds like it'll be uh, interesting as always, and it'll be nice to mix things up a bit. I take it we'll still be doing our regular Q&A sessions. Well, it wouldn't be answers to giant questions without answers to giant questions. Worth. Don't be shy, folks. Send in those questions. That's right, giantanswers.com, or find us on the socials. Well, I think we're pretty much done here, but I just want to remind our listeners that since we have reached the end of the season, that means we're taking a month off and we will have a brand new series of episodes ready to go for when we return. In the meantime, don't go anywhere. This is your opportunity to catch up on any episodes you might have missed. Well, perhaps it's time you jumped on Amazon and ordered a copy of the excellent book, Answers to Giant Questions for Yourself. Paperback or Kindle, folks, get into it. I just wanted to say before we go there, a lot of people have asked me what other projects I might have in the pipeline. To be honest, there are a lot of things that I would like to do, but I just don't have the time. I work a regular full-time job and I do this stuff outside of that. But I am writing another book. 
Uh, you're not going to see it for a few years, so don't hold your breath, but it's coming. Awesome. That's great news. So what else can you tell us about it? About what? The book. Which book? The book of which you've just been talking about. The book you're carrying inside your busting innards. Just you consider writing that book for them. Oh, dear, you've got me quoting Star Wars now. Oh, that book. Uh, nope. What do you mean, nope? No spoilers, dude. It's a long way off from here. I don't want to get people excited prematurely. Oh, I think you've already done that. You just told everybody you're writing another book. Well, I just want people to know that this one book that I've already written isn't going to be the only thing I ever put out. You know, give people a little confidence. And you're going to do that by not telling us what this new book is? Yeah, pretty much. Alrighty then. So uh, unless there's anything else, I guess that's a wrap for season four of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Is there anything else, Tim? Uh, yeah, feel free to grab me some eggnog, preferably chilled. And if you're picking up any Tim Tams, I like the double coat variety. They hold up a lot better in a Tim Tam slam. What are you talking about? This isn't a shopping list. We're wrapping up the season. I just wanted to know if you had anything else to say. Well, I'm just putting it out there. I mean, you know, you don't have because you don't ask. You know what I mean? So I, I've got a lot of study to do. I need snacks. All right. Uh, see you later, everyone. We'll be back in a month with more episodes of your favorite Bible podcast or this one, whatever. Uh, stick around and keep those giant questions coming. Bye. Bye-bye. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help, but a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode, so if you have haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops that's all we have time for today we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by grave forsaken graveforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions read the blog catch us on the socials don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers we'll see you next time until then stay safe and god bless and I would have gone and I would have gone away with it too if it wasn't and I would have gone away with it too if it why is this so hard and it was all a dream and it was all a dream and it was all, 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 all,